Welcome to today's episode of Ownership Matters, a podcast for homeowners in resident-owned communities, brought to you by Rock USA. I'm Paul Bradley. And I'm Mike Bullard. We have a great guest for you today. Tori Clark, Executive Director of North Country Cooperative Foundation, is here to talk to us about a wide range of topics, from the favorite parts of her job to her plans for the future at NCF to stigma. This conversation covers it all. Let's dive right in with some background on Tori, shall we? Yes, Mike, let's. Victoria Tory Clark is the Executive Director of the North Country Cooperative Foundation, a role she took on in September of 2020. Tory first joined NCF in 2016 and has led the formation of new resident-owned communities in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa since 2019. Converting manufactured home communities to resident ownership is NCF's flagship program. And as a Rock USA certified technical assistance provider, they work with 12 rocks in their region. Tori, thank you so very much for joining us today on Ownership Matters. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be with you. It really is our pleasure. So let's just start here by having you share a little bit about your background, if you could. Where did you grow up? And I love this question. What were your aspirations for your career when you were in high school? I grew up in a uh, little town called St. James, Minnesota, in Watanwan County in southwest Minnesota. Both my parents are Presbyterian ministers. My dad was the long-term Presbyterian minister in St. James for almost 30 years. Grew up in in St. James, a really diverse town, and Minnesota has a really high uh, Latino population, like a lot of places in that part of the state. So it was a really diverse, vibrant place to grow up. A uh, really fun place to grow up in Minnesota. But I was really interested in, in public policy uh, in high school. I was interested in public policy and in writing and teaching. So those were some of the things that kind of guided me into the next phase of going to college where I became an English major. So how did you make that transition from English major in college and, and a public policy minded person to a career in affordable housing? And, and how did that happen? Yeah, I've been asked this question a lot, and I, I love it because I've, I've had some time to reflect on it. There's two things that motivated my interest in affordable housing. One was where I grew up, and there was a, always a, a lack of affordable housing where I grew up, and there was like that became really clear to me. I had lots of friends whose families were first-generation immigrants that had come to the United States, and they all had stories of housing insecurity. And so from a very young age, at a really formidable age, it became like I had a stable place to live. You know, we, I was, you know, born and raised in the same house all throughout my formative years. And that had a huge impact on my growth as a person. And so I knew the value of having a stable place to live in a community, a strong community, and then saw amongst my peers and my, you know, very close friends of mine who are still friends close friends of mine to this day who had these really harrowing stories of insecurity in their housing. And then when I was 17, my dad was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and it just totally shook. And he was the main breadwinner in our family. And we then had our own experience as a family with insecurity, financial insecurity, and just like uncertainty because our whole world was rocked by this diagnosis. And, um, 
and had a period of, 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 of real instability as a family. And so then had that experience and 17, 18 years old, you know, my dad going on disability and then going into college and, and, and it just like time and time again, throughout those formative years, housing was the access right around which everything pivoted. And it was so central to your ability to thrive and grow and dream. And that's what really, like, I, I would say that's what really got me interested in, in affordable housing. You're absolutely right on, Tori. That is very powerful. Mill Duncan, who's a sociologist at the University of New Hampshire, or was for many years, says stability, just basic stability is highly underrated for families, uh, for all families, for all households. Really, we need stable households, we need stable families, we need stable communities. So yep. really poignant. Yeah, you know, from from affordable housing, then you you uh, evolved into cooperatives a good handful or so years ago. I'm just curious, what was your transition from affordable housing to adding this cooperative development experience? What attracted you to the co-op sector? Yeah, my first job out of college, you know, I worked for a statewide organization that was doing affordable housing advocacy and uh, technical assistance with like smaller housing and redevelopment authorities. And at the local level, there was doing technical assistance, working with those communities to develop affordable housing. And it was a great place to work and I learned a ton. But one of the things that I was missing for me in that work and what I saw as missing in the spectrum of affordable housing solutions was, was ownership. And there was a really narrow definition of ownership and the focus was always on single family home ownership, right? And and that seemed to dominate the landscape. And I was like, I know, and I, I had traveled abroad in college and so I had seen co-ops and, and shared equity housing and I had been exposed to those types of models. And I was like, man, there's, there's I know there's a broader continuum here. I know that there's other, there's some creative ways to, to, to do affordable housing. And so I just started looking around and, and I found a job, a friend of mine actually sent me the job posting at NCF. And she was like, this sounds like you. And I applied and thankfully was, was hired. But really, I mean, it wasn't until I started at NCF that I became totally in love with the model. Like I wasn't a believer before I came to NCF. It was really once I started doing the work, I mean, I was attracted to the work for all of these kind of principles that I had about democratic ownership, shared ownership, community ownership, but didn't really understand where the rubber met the road. And then when you, and then when you discover that, then you, then I totally fell in love with it. Just absolutely became a co-op enthusiast. So it was really, yeah, my entry into coming to NCF and, and then starting to work with the ROC program at NCF that really sold me on co-ops. Now, Tori, you mentioned providing technical assistance in a previous job, and I'll be honest with you, that was a term I had never heard before I started at Rock USA, and I'm going to guess I'm not alone. Tori, can you just take a minute and explain what you see as your role in technical assistance and that of your team at NCF in their work with resident-owned communities? Yeah, that's a great question. And another question that I get a lot, right? Because it is a very <laughs> jargony phrase. And it's a phrase that like we use internally to describe a lot of different things, but it, it is helpful to unpack it a little bit. And I would just, I would preface my description of what I see technical assistance as, as 
you know, that was my first job at NCF was providing, I was hired as a post-purchase technical assistance provider. That was in my title. Technical assistance was in my title. So I do have some direct experience with it. So my description of it is informed by that experience. We have a, you know, technical, the word technical is a good descriptor of what we do because a lot of the ways that we're interfacing with communities is on technical questions, you know, related to governance. They need a specific policy drafted for something or they have a question about their bylaws or a question of how elections are run. So using the word technical is a great descriptor, right? As the starting point for what technical assistance is. And that's why we exist, right? Is to help communities troubleshoot, work through problems, and navigate governance and operating questions, right? So the harder to describe aspects of technical assistance are the things that happen on the day-to-day work, right? When, when I describe, you know, we're a sounding board, right? We're there for someone to call if they have a question. It's also about relationship. Technical assistance is not just, you know, we're not just a consultant. That's not how we see ourselves. We're not just this third party that you contract with right? We're in deep relationship with each of the communities that we help support, right? And that is part of what makes cooperatives different. I mean, that's our commitment to cooperatives, right? And democratic ownership and all of these principles that co-ops adhere to and abide by is that it's not just a transaction, purely transactional relationship. You know, it's not a fee-for-service model, right? We're in it with our communities for the long haul because we believe in democratic, cooperative ownership. I think you hit it really well because in these communities that were in such uncertain times when when their neighborhood was for sale, you were the voice of expertise. You were helping them through this. You know, if it was part of somebody's personal life, it, you would call that a traumatic experience probably, right? Or, a, or certainly a difficult, challenging experience where, you know, your future was a little uncertain. And the TA providers are the ones who are face-to-face, you know, with the exception of the last year, of course, but mostly face-to-face and, and helping folks through that challenge. It's huge. Yeah. And, and and the reason why I describe it as a relationship is because it's fueled by trust. Yeah. Trust, uh, critically important to every relationship, right? And being trustworthy. I, I think about technical assistance as well as uh, an organizational coaching role, which I think does speak to your relationship and deep relationship with the community. And it's a curious relationship, right? Because it is with individuals, but over time, you're in relationship with the organization, yes, which brings in new leadership and different leadership over time. But it's a constant. As you said, this is long-term. NCF mm-hmm. is in a long-term relationship with the organization that is the cooperative. Does that jive with how you think about it as well? Absolutely. We're there to support strong, stable, enduring enterprises. But the foundation of that is is strong relationships, right? Throughout and amongst and with board members, members of the co-op and and stakeholders, right? Around the co-op's community, you know, the local community development office and other nonprofits that support the co-op. So we're, we're part of that ecosystem of support for that, for that enterprise for the long haul. Absolutely. And speaking of the long haul, uh, and I'm not, I'm not recalling uh, the date of the first co-op manufactured home community in Minnesota, but I know, I, I think it dates back to 2005 or six story. 2004. Yeah. 2004. Okay, good. So talk about what's your relationship with that. What now 16, 17 year old co-op as you talk about 
the relationship over time. What's the long-term outlook for co-ops? Yeah, so our Sunrise Villa is the the co-op in question in Cannon Falls, Minnesota. And they predate, of course, the creation of, of Rock USA, right? So we got into doing conversions because our leadership at that time went out to New Hampshire and met up with you, Paul, and some other folks at the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund and were inspired by what was happening in New Hampshire and said, we want to do this in Minnesota. So Cannon Falls and Sunrise Villa was one of the first projects that we, as an organization, of course, I wasn't there, (laughs) but that they converted to co-op ownership. And Sunrise Villa is still resident-owned in Cannon Falls. And since they weren't financed through Rock USA Capital, since their financing is is a little different from how most of our co-ops subsequently now have been formed and structured, we don't have an ongoing post-purchase technical assistance agreement with them. So Sunrise Villa still will attend and is connected with the larger Rack USA network. So they'll attend Rack Leadership Institute. I saw a couple of board members out a couple of years ago, but pre-pandemic, uh, that were out at the Leadership Institute and they'll still get invited. They receive our invites to our regional convenings that we'll put on for our resident-owned community leaders to come and peer network and learn from each other and do some continuing ed. And of course, they have access to all of our ongoing continuing education that we'll provide virtually, you know, webinars, whatever we do, newsletters, they're connected with that. So even if you don't have an ongoing, what we call a post-purchase technical assistance contract with us, you're still part of the family, right? You don't leave. And I think Rock USA, you know, talks about it that way too, right? That even if you're not financed through Rock USA Capital, if you're a resident-owned community, you're part of the movement, man. You're here part of the family of resident-owned communities and, and you don't leave that family just because the the way that you're interacting or um, you know, receiving services changes, which I think is a beautiful part of the the model, right? It's Great. Part, part, of, part of the movement. That's great, Tori. Both you said man, which is, uh, I must say, takes me back to the 70s and I always love incorporating that into my speech whenever possible, which was made me smile. But it also made me smile to hear you talking about the ongoing relationship and the ongoing training. Just to give our listeners a feel, like if they if they were to come to an NCF regional training, just describe a couple of the workshop topics that people might see and, and be able to take advantage of. Yeah, our regional convenings are, we we really put a high emphasis on receiving feedback and structuring our trainings and workshop sessions on what our client co-ops want, that, what they're struggling with, right? We, we go in and we talk, we've got a committee of folks that will provide feedback prior to the creation of the agenda. And we'll say, you know, what are you struggling with? What do you need training on? What questions have come up? And then we see where are the themes, right? Where are the commonalities of challenges? So it's a completely collaborative process every year, how we structure these trainings. So this year, for example, the regional convening will have a session on fair housing. That's always changing, you know? Laws are always changing. Landlords and landowners and people that are doing property management need to be continually read in on what's changing. So there'll be a session on fair housing. I'm doing a session on infill, on how to fill vacant lots, right? And the various strategies that uh, a co-op can employ to bring new homes in. And, um, and, and usually there's a session about, you know, best practices and property management. 
um, whether it's specific to fair housing or not, there'll be something uh, related to that and usually something related to capital improvement planning. Planning for special projects. And in the past, we've done uh, sessions on, you know, communications, member engagement, how to get new board members. You know, it just depends on the year. And increasingly, because of the remote environment that we're operating in now, we're all doing things virtually. We've been doing quite a bit of training on building your, you know, technological capacity and being able to leverage that at the at your individual co-op level as well. So real diversity in those get-togethers. But people come because they want to get to know and they want to build relationships with the other folks in the other resident-owned communities. And that's always fun to see, right? Because they learn the most from each other, almost. <laughs> oh, invariably, uh, Tori. I, I often reflect on, you know, for years, I was doing regional trainings personally back many years ago now. But the number one uh, piece of feedback in the evaluations was, wow, this was great. Getting together with other co-op leaders, I learned so much. And I'd always think to myself, but what about the excellent training content I worked so hard on? Come on, <laughs> but man. It's really about peer networking. Co-op leaders love getting together with one another, sharing ideas, sharing you know themselves and building relationships. And I think it's a real strength of what we're all doing is by creating opportunities for co-op leaders to create these peer networks. And I think we could take that all to a whole new level by leveraging technology a lot more. I'm really super excited about that here in our next next iteration. But yeah, really wonderful. Tori, you, it, it's pretty clear the passion you have for these communities and, and certainly the folks who are living in them. Can you talk to us just a little bit about the source of that passion? How did how did you develop it? And what have you seen and experienced in, in rocks that that keeps you so dedicated to these communities? It's my experience doing the day-to-day technical assistance work, right? But I, when I first knew the organization doing and working directly with resident leaders, that's what kept me at the organization. That's what inspires uh, me to this day and keeps me motivated is the intrepidness, the resiliency of the folks that we work with and represent in all facets of our work. There's just countless stories of the type of scrappy stick with itness local innovation that takes place when you open up ownership, right? When you provide a pathway, when we can, as a society, when we can provide an opportunity for folks to lead, they'll lead. That's what I tell everyone that I talk to is that the capacity is there. The, the ability is there. We're just opening the door to it you know, and providing resources to it so that it can flourish and thrive. I like to garden. So I'll refer to it as we're just gardening, right? We're not the brilliant ones. You know, we're not the ones that are living in the community. We can provide resources and guidance and support and we can nurture and and cultivate. But the real beauty is, is in the community, right? The real strength is in the community. There's just, there's numerous, there's too many stories to count. Uh, just in the just in the five years that I've been at the organization of leaders that step up in times of challenge, you know, folks that are eager to learn and grow in their leadership, that get active at the community level and do really transformative work in their communities, right? And, and without being asked, you know, that just show up and do it. Can I can I ask you to share just one? What one of your favorite stories out of the last five years? I think of Allie Lechner at Zumbro Ridge Estates in Rochester. You know, Allie saw a need in her community. 
she saw a way in which her skills and her background intersected with a need in the community. And she went for it and spoke to the vision of what she and the board and the membership at Zumbro Ridge had for their community and sold that vision, right, to stakeholders that then made real investments, right? They, she sold that to the local initiative foundation or Rochester Area Foundation, got this pool of money to bring in new homes into the community. I think they've brought in like 10 plus new homes into the community, maybe more than that now. I wrote a little case study about about a year ago. She saw that she had this experience. She saw that it intersected with a real need in the co-op and she went for it. And, and I love to lift up that example because I'm like, if Zumbra Ridge wasn't resident owned, there would be no alley, right? There would be no alley. There would be no opportunity for an alley to lead and to show up. And I've spoken with leaders around Rochester when I was writing the, a little case study about what Allie was doing around bringing in new homes. And the thing that struck me was that all of these folks that I talked to around Rochester that had been involved with this effort were like, because I would ask this question of like, you know, why did you get involved in this project? And they were like, Allie's passion. You know, she was just like, she saw the vision. She saw the value in Zumbro Ridge. Um, she loves her community. She loves the people that live in her community. And that love inspired people. And that's what ownership does, right? I mean, it's hard to fight against that energy of love for community, right? And there's just something transformative about it. And people get excited about it because, you know, when you love where you live and you're excited about making it a better place, that attracts people, that attracts energy, it attracts resources. And she really has, I mean, hit it out of the park there with with not just the the infill project, but the the huge new playground that they have put in and a basketball court. You know, we worked with her building the, their website. I mean, she's just, she's all over the place. And and I have to think that kind of enthusiasm in the larger community of, of Rochester and, and the surrounding area, I mean, that's got to do a lot to go at this nasty, unfair stigma about not Zumbro Ridge in particular, but but manufactured housing and manufactured housing communities all over the place. It's got to open up some eyes for people who never would have given that a second thought, right? Have you heard anything when you were out talking to Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it changes hearts and minds of the whole community because it's hard to have someone show up and say, I live in this community. I'm passionate about it. It's an affordable place to live. I love the people that I live. I love my neighbors and I care about them. You know, it's hard to look at someone in the eye and then say, and to still hold all of your stigmas close to your chest. Like when someone's, you know, when someone's laying down the truth to you, right. And coming from, it's where they live, you know, it's their home. It's hard to deny that. And and, and that's what breaks down barriers for people and, and around the stigma. And then they start saying, oh yeah, Zumbro Ridge, this is an affordable housing asset in our community. It's providing home ownership to folks at, you know, 50% of area median income, which is jargon, I apologize, but, you know, for folks that are working people, folks on fixed incomes, folks that are, you know, these vibrant contributors to the community that we want to keep in these communities and places like Zumbro Ridge allow that to happen, allow people to stay and contribute to the community. So yeah, it, it's, it, it absolutely plays a huge role in changing, I would say, the perception of just the industry at large, like manufactured home communities at large. So you're welcome to the rest of the industry <laughs> for <laughs> our resident-owned communities just like stepping up and, and being awesome. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Tori, I love how you reflected on Allie's leadership and 
where you see capacity for leadership in all communities and so many folks who don't put themselves forward necessarily or, or have the opportunity. Uh, but this really opens up tremendous opportunities for people uh, like Allie and the thousands of other Allies out there in resident-owned communities. And you've recently taken a step up in your own leadership. You've been named executive director of NCF. Congratulations. Officially on air, I've said congratulations before, obviously. But I would love it, Tori, if you could just reflect on your own, uh, maybe guiding principles around your own leadership at NCF and particularly focus in on any you think, given your role in resident-owned communities that might be important or meaningful to co-op leaders. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly been a crazy nine months since I've stepped up into this role, but it's been a lot of fun and I've learned a lot thus far. But part of the thing that I think excites me so much about being in this new role at the organization is is the background that I have in the various functions of our work, right? And the different roles that we play. As I already mentioned, I have experience, you know, that's why I came to the organization was providing technical assistance. And so I have direct experience with that and see the impact, right? Of that ability to provide technical assistance and what it is and what it means and uh, the value that it brings. And so I'm excited to, to, to grow and build on the things that the organization's already doing well, right? In our technical assistance work and how we do new conversions of communities and how we support our staff to do this work well in community. And I would say, you know, my guiding principles in this work for the organization is number one is collaboration and, and cooperation, right? We're a cooperative development center and I want, I want the organization's, um, strategic direction and how we deliver our programs and how we're doing our work. I want our folks to be, I want the folks that we serve to be involved in that, right? And to, and to be in conversation and relationship with the folks that we're serving so that they feel that they can reach out to me and talk to me as the leader of the organization, as the person at the top, that they can call me and say, hey, I think that we could do this. Or, you know, I, I, I'd appreciate this, or I'd love to see this. I want us to, I want us to I want that to be a really core part of who we are going forward. I think that we were strong there before, and I just want to continue to strengthen that core principle of the organization and transparency and accountability, which go hand in hand with that. But all of that is, you know, I mentioned trust earlier in the conversation and in the relationship that we have with each of the co-ops that we support and finding intentional structured ways to have those conversations about how the organization does its work is important to me, right? And, and I think that there's real opportunities to, to do that work better going forward organizationally. But it's also just more fun to be collaborative, frankly, and, and cooperative, like, you, and you'll get a better outcome too. Um, but our, uh, like the folks that we work with have great ideas, right? I already said that, you know, it's like the ideas come from community. You know, the best ideas come from community I have found. And so it's just like, I, I have an opportunity to elevate that, right, in this new role. I have the opportunity to, to hear those ideas and listen and then be able to be in a position to implement and support those through fundraising and coalition building and, and, and all of that and, and supporting our team, right, supporting the, the rest of our team that's, that's doing the work. So, yeah, it's exciting for us. So I know... One group of homeowners in Minnesota came up with an idea this year to pursue uh, an opportunity to purchase law. What motivated that group to do that and push for that legislation? And, and how, how was NCF involved? That was a co- resident-led coalition made up of 
board members from some of our communities, some of our RACs are a member of that coalition and non-resident owned uh, communities. So an APAC, All Parks Alliance for Change, the local statewide advocacy organization for manufactured homeowners across the state was the, the core partner to that group. And NCF was obviously supportive of our RAC leaders who are pushing that. Natividad Seafeld of Park Plaza, board president there, Marjorie Gilsrud and Medelia Mobile Village, and a number of others who you know aren't on the core steering committee but have kind of been supporting that effort from the periphery. And I mean, the thing that's the thing that's amazing about that effort is the chutzpah from the resident-owned community leaders. And I'm like, you guys already own your communities, <laughs> you know, um, why are you getting involved in this? You know, you're already resident owned. And they're like, yeah, but we want the benefit. We want that same opportunity and all the benefits that we've, we've had. We want that for all of our neighbors, right? We want that for all of our, all of our homeowners across the state, right? We want them to have the same crack at, at, at ownership as we've had. And frankly, they're following the headlines, right? They're dismayed at the at the level of uh, at the sea change of ownership in manufactured housing, and uh, and they're following that, right? They're savvy. They they see what's happening, and it's it's troubling to them. And they made a great effort this year. My gosh, they um, they they created a great website. Um, they made it all the way through the house with the bill. And I should clarify um, the the bill. The opportunity to purchase, commonly referred to as OTP, it's a bill that's in effect in six states across the country. So it's legislation that's in effect in six states across the country, most recently in Colorado, it was passed. And it's just a law that allows anytime a, a park is going to go up for sale, a community is going to go up for sale, it provides an opportunity for the residents of the community, the homeowners in the community, to put in an offer on the property. And so it's it's recognition Fundamentally, I would say the bill is the legislation is a recognition of what the homeowners have at stake, right? That they have something they ought to have a crack at this because they have a they have a unique tie to the land, and their their home is inextricably linked to the land, right? Because it's hard to move their home. So I think it's a really common sense piece of of legislation that I think is getting traction across the the country. But these residents made a really strong bid for it. And they're, they're, they're going to go after it next year too. So they're, they're already heating up for it for, for next session. So they're pretty, pretty strongly committed to it. Now the state housing finance authority in Minnesota has also prioritized preserving and improving communities. The resource there pales in comparison to other affordable housing sectors, but they're important investments. What is the HFA doing in rocks in Minnesota today? Yes. So Minnesota Housing, our state housing finance agency has really stepped up in response to the growing public outcry for the need to preserve the affordability of these communities. I think it was 2019, they actually established a separate office. So they established a manufactured housing program at the housing finance agency, which was huge. I highly recommend all states to have a program at their housing finance agency that's dedicated to manufactured housing. Please do that. It's a great place to start. So they established that, hired some awesome staff, and then they've been building out subsequently their programs for manufactured housing. So number one is they administer the manufactured housing redevelopment program, right, which NCF advocates for state investment in every year. We go to the state legislature and, and 
advocate for, for resources to be put into that. So they, that the, that program at the housing finance agency administers those resources to manufactured home communities to do water, sewer, road, rehab. So core infrastructure improvements. So they have that program, which is awesome. And this year we have a historic win. We're going to get a, a set aside of housing infrastructure bonds, which is one of the main ways that they fund affordable housing in Minnesota is through the sale of these state bonds. And so there'll be an allocation dedicated for manufactured housing infrastructure improvements this year, which is a huge win. And so the HFA will administer those funds. So it's infrastructure improvement money. They're also working on a loan product for acquisitions for manufactured home communities. So diversifying the types of loans and financing that that resident-owned communities can leverage to purchase their communities. And then we're also advocating and they're working on single family finance, right? So homes for manufactured homes themselves, down payment assistance and, and all of those things that support manufactured homeowners to get some better interest rates and terms for their, their homes, make those, those home payments more affordable. That's huge. Uh, so yeah, so lots, lots going on at the state housing finance agency, but I can't stress enough how having a dedicated place at, the housing finance agency, it's just made a huge difference. Like we have a place to go, communities have a place to go, and they have someone at the agency that's specialized in manufactured housing and knows how to answer questions, right? That's really been the game changer, honestly. That's really great. And of course, every state in the country has a housing finance agency or authority come in various names, but these are state by state, statewide state agencies or quasi-public agencies. And so this is a replicable national model. This can be done anywhere. So that's great, Tori. Thanks so much for bringing some information to that. Uh, We'd like to conclude with just an open-ended question. If there's anything top of mind for you that you'd like to share with co-op leaders from coast to coast, this really just an opportunity to, to share whatever thoughts you might have and really looking forward to what you have to say. I would just express my deep gratitude. I mean, none of this, none of this works without resident leaders. It, it, you know, it all works because there's people like you speaking directly to the folks listening to this podcast. It only works because people like you are engaged and you care and you love your communities and you're passionate about where you live and preserving it and improving it. Yeah, it's just a deep well of, of gratitude. So that's that's the main thing that I'd like to express. I just, this is incredible work. It's a fun, it's an incredibly fun, rich place to spend your professional life. And I'm only able to do that because we have resident leaders that are like, yeah, we love this too. We want to be a part of this. And we wanted, we want to walk this walk and do this work with you. So thank you would be that's my, great. what I want to express. That resonates with me very deeply, as you know, and I resonate with so much of what you shared with us today. So thank you so much for joining us on Ownership Matters. It's really great to have your voice and your, your uh, mind here on, uh, on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely looking forward to what's coming next out there in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you, Tori. Rock on. Wow. What a great conversation with Tori. She is so passionate about her work and so fun to talk to, don't you think, Paul? Oh, she sure is, Mike. She was excellent. I really enjoyed hearing her talk about the trajectory of her career and her plans for the path forward at NCF. 
The ways the NCF team has leaned into technical assistance with resident-owned communities is truly inspiring. And you could hear just how proud Tori was of their efforts when she was talking about Allie Lechner at Zumbro Ridge. No kidding, huh, Paul? I really enjoyed hearing about the resident-led legislative efforts happening in Minnesota, too. It's really inspiring. It sure is, Mike. As always, thanks for joining us on today's episode of Ownership Matters. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Talk soon. Talk soon.